Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there's Ma- the, you go to the New Testament, there's an Old Testament and then a New Testament, and the third book in the New Testament is called Luke. So there's Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And then there are chapters and verse divisions, so we're going to chapter 5 and then the verses 27. After this, he went out. That's key being Jesus. He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a company, a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new one, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the the skins will be destroyed." But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word together this morning, as we consider the message of Jesus that's given to us in this picture, the gospel that's shown before us, that's being lived out in front of us in the life of Jesus, Pray that you would help us to see and rejoice in and be repentant before your truth. That we would know that Jesus is our hope. would look to him and love him and be thankful for him. That we would not be caught up with self-righteousness, but that you would root it out of our hearts. So that we would know that Jesus alone is our righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, theologian and professor Michael Horton asked um, this question as he wrote in his book, um, Christless Christianity. He said this, What would things look like if Satan actually took over a city? The first frames, as he goes on, the first frames in our imaginative slideshow probably depict mayhem on a massive scale, widespread violence, deviant sexualities, pornography in every vending machine, churches closed down and worshipers dragged off to City Hall. Over a half century ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, gave his CBS radio audience a different picture of what it would look like if Satan took control of a town in America. He said that all of the bars and pool halls would be closed, pornography banished, 
pristine streets and sidewalks would be occupied by tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The kids would answer, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full on Sundays. The churches where Christ is not preached. What's he getting at here? What's Michael Horton getting at here and Donald Gray Barnhouse getting at here when they say this? What they're saying is that Satan would love, he would love to lure us into the trap of thinking living a good, moral, upright life means we're okay with God. That Satan would love to convince us that God is present in and blessing our churches and cities where everything looks like a rosy, clean, conservative, moral, well-mannered little outfit. Because in this scenario, in that scenario, in that city, we would so see no need for Jesus. None. Good moral communities, now I don't want you to get me wrong, good moral communities are not bad as an outcome as an outcome of people who know, trust, and love Jesus, who recognize they're a wreck without him, and who always are looking to him. However, good moral communities are horrific. They're monstrous as a replacement for knowing, trusting, and loving Jesus because they lull us into trusting in our own self-righteousness and not recognizing our need for him. And the trouble, is that the, the trouble is that the loss of sensing our need for Jesus isn't usually that clear-cut and simple. Right? Let me tell you how it happens. Because we don't usually lose the preaching of the gospel of Jesus in the church or in our communities all of a sudden. It doesn't usually even happen purposefully. So how does it happen? Well, I'll give you three steps. First, here's the first step. We have a generation that's destitute. They're completely wrecked, and they recognize, they recognize their need for Jesus. They, they're being radically saved. They're continuously infatuated with the gospel of Jesus because they know it's not just the front door into the house of Christianity, but it's the whole house. They know the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the gospel is the A through Z of Christianity. And that generation starts a church and they pour their lives into the church getting the gospel out. They feel like they've heard a message that somehow their friends have been hidden from or kept from and they want them to know it. That's how it starts. That's good. Second, the church begins to become used to the gospel as they grow more mature in their faith. And they start to settle into their newly cleaned up lives And they have a growing self-satisfaction that they have the right doctrine. And a growing self-satisfaction, a growing sense that their first priority needs to be protect their children from the sinful world out there. And they lose the understanding that the cleaning up of their lives was an effect, an effect of the gospel. And they start to pin it on their good moral decision making, their parenting, or their politics. Thus they begin to assume the gospel. That starts with assuming. It becomes the ABCs. While maturity in the church is found in wise parenting 
and sound doctrine and good moral decisions and separation from the ungodly and refined spiritual disciplines and well-mannered lives and conservative politics. Third, third, what becomes assumed is eventually lost. And it's lost completely as the gospel of Jesus is rarely, if ever, preached. See, everything looks good with the church, but people aren't getting radically saved anymore. Religiosity is fully set in. Legalism rules the day. Evangelism and missions is dead. And the church becomes a holy huddle of those in the know, and it's dying. And we have to understand this tendency can affect us all can't it? We should never lose the idea in our hearts or in our church that this whole faith, everything we're talking about here is about Jesus and the good news that he brings from first to last. The gospel isn't something that we tack on for unbelievers so that they can become better people like we are. The gospel is something we must preach always. We must trust, rely on, talk about, hold forth, be thoroughly grounded in because we're all a mess and we all need Jesus and we all need his righteousness as much as any unbeliever out there does. So what do we learn about the gospel of Jesus from the passage today? Because I'm saying all this to bring us to this passage. We're going to learn something about him and his good news, his message from this passage And what we're going to learn is we're going to see a picture, a picture that we probably don't spend a lot of time considering, but a picture of Jesus showing grace to sinners. And I want to look at the four truths that, four truths that this story really gloriously portrays for us. So here they are. The first one is this. Jesus, why don't you hear this? Jesus comes looking for us. Hear that? Jesus comes looking for us. Look at verse 27. After this, that's what's after this? Jesus had been in a house teaching, and they had lowered down a paralytic man, and he'd healed the man and forgiven him of his sins, sent him home. So he's in the city, he's been healing, and now he's left the house, and he's walking out to the outskirts of the city where the tax collector booth is. So after this, he went out, that's Jesus, and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, who is Levi? Levi, we find out in the Gospel of Matthew, is Matthew. That's the other name he's given, which means gift of God. Matthew is the one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. That's Levi. That's who we're talking about. He comes up to Levi, sitting at the tax booth, because that's where Levi is. Jesus comes to him. Levi didn't get up from the tax booth and come to him, to come to Jesus. Jesus saw Levi at the tax booth, and he went over to him. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Listen, I want to make this point really briefly because I'm going to spend a lot of time on the other ones. But this is the whole story of the Bible. Hear that? Adam and Eve fall into sin and what do they do? They go hiding behind the bushes when God shows up. And what does God do? He goes looking for them, doesn't he? Noah is in the midst of a wicked people Noah doesn't cry out to God. God comes to Noah. Abram, who we now know as Abraham. Abram is living among pagans. 
And God comes to Abram or Abraham and calls him out. Same thing happens with Isaac and Jacob. The same thing happens with Moses who's out in the wilderness. God comes to him. And then he says, Moses, you're going to be my mouthpiece. Go to Egypt and get my people. God goes looking for them. David, he's a shepherd. God goes out and gets him. And find this the whole story. Jesus, when he comes, what does Jesus say? I have come to seek and save the lost. You see, we're not a people who are out seeking the true God. He is a God who's out seeking us. Hear that? And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, it's not a mistake you're here. Jesus is seeking you. Sovereign grace, God has not placed you around unbelievers by mistake. He's placed you there because he's seeking them through you. So that's the first thing we have to understand in this picture. Jesus is seeking us, not the other way around. Second, Jesus comes for sinners. I'm going to spend quite a bit more time here and on the third point. Jesus comes for sinners, not for the self-righteous. Hear that? Verse 27 again, and then we'll go on to 29 through 32. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Why does he go up to a tax collector? Why do I say he comes for sinners and not the self-righteous? Because you guys know what a tax collector was in that culture? See, when we think of tax collectors, we think of the IRS, right? They're not doing anything immoral or abusive. Now, we might not like the laws they're having to enforce, but they're not generally committing theft or, or they're just following the laws that have been given, okay? What happens with tax collectors in that culture is quite different. In that culture, what was happening in that day is that men would gather together, rich guys, and they would bid for the right to become a tax collector. In other words, they go before a Roman governor of some sort and they would say, listen, I will shake down the people for this much money. And whoever got the highest bid... Whoever's going to shake down the people for the most, he, he won. So what he would do is he would pay the Roman government that price that he'd shake down the people for, whatever city he was at. And then what he would do is he'd go back and he would collect that to pay himself back and then to make more. And if people couldn't afford it, he would shake them down and give them extremely high interest loans. In other words, what a tax collector was in the business of doing was stealing from the people. And he was bidding for the right to steal from people, to oppress people, to radically destroy people's lives so that he could become increasingly wealthy. That's what he did. That was a tax collector. That's who Jesus comes up to. He comes up to a man who was selling out his own ethnic people, funding a military that was crushing them and keeping them oppressed so that he could become rich. That's this guy, Levi. He's the scum of the earth in their minds. And Jesus comes up to him. He goes seeking him. And look what it says. He not only came up to him, he said, follow me, be my disciple. That means believe in me, trust in me, repent, turn from your sins, and follow me. Become my disciple. I'm a rabbi, and I want you to follow me. Rabbis never called out the scum of the earth to be their followers. 
They called out good, moral, righteous guys to be their followers. But not Jesus. He comes after the scum. says, follow me. And so Levi does. And he left everything and he rose and he followed him. Verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. Now if you're going to make a great feast and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them, if you're going to make a great feast in that day, these are massive feasts. This is an incredible outlay of cash, okay? This guy is spending tons and tons of money for this party. And not only is he spending exorbitant amounts of money for this party, he's he's got to have to hire servants for this, bring in food, the whole thing. And then he's inviting all of the other scumbag friends he has to the party. All of these tax collectors and these sinners, prostitutes, people who are dirty in various other ways, societally and culturally and morally. And he invites them to the party. And Jesus goes. Now, I want you to understand how shocking that would have been. Tax collectors got wealthy off of shaking people down for money. And then those tax collectors turned around and spent that ill-gotten gain to have a party. And Jesus went to that party. Hear that? He went to it. And he went to that party that was being funded by a bunch of ill-gotten gain. And not only did he go to it, he ate a meal with them. And in that culture, to eat a meal is to accept someone. It's to embrace them. It's to have a friendship with them. And it's incredibly shocking to the people because Jesus is embracing these people. And the Pharisees, verse 30 And the Pharisees and their scribes, the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of the day in one sense. There were the Sadducees, okay? They were the more religiously liberal types, but they ran the Sanhedrin. Sadducees because they they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, right? That's, That's where they were, but they ran the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were the guys who were basically the separated ones, the set-apart ones. They were the holy guys. They were the ones who believed in the whole Testament. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels and demons. They were the, the religious conservatives of the day. They didn't rule the Sanhedrin, but you know what they did do? They were popular among the people. And so if the Pharisees thought it should be that way, the people thought it should be that way, and therefore the Sanhedrin would generally act in accord with that because they were afraid. They were afraid of the people turning against them. So the Pharisees were the cultural leaders of the day, the conservatives, the ones who wanted to stand against Rome, the ones who held to the law and all kinds of additional laws on top of it. They were strict, separated, set apart, and the scribes were the guys who studied that law with them. And they saw this, and their Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. Interestingly, in verse 30, they grumble at the disciples, not Jesus, right? You know how that goes. You're doing something people don't like as a leader and they complain about you to other people, right? Not to you. Anyways, so that's normal, human nature. They grumble at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I want you to hear this charge is going to come up again later in Luke. Here's, why would you do that? Don't you know who you're eating and drinking with? 
Don't you know where they got the money to buy that stuff? Don't you know what kind of people these are? Verse 31, and Jesus answered them, those who are well, see Jesus overhears what's going on and answers. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It's a pretty obvious statement, right? Jesus is making a pretty obvious statement. Listen, if you're not sick, you don't need a doctor, right? But if you are, you do. And I want you to understand, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, you're a bunch of self-righteous guys who think you don't need me. The people I've come to call sinners, which is everyone, but you don't recognize it. You don't know you're sick, so you don't go to a doctor. These people know they're sick. So they come to the doctor. They know they're sinners. So they come to repentance. See, Jesus doesn't just come after people, like I said in the first point. He comes after a particular kind of people. He comes after sinners, ungodly, disgusting people. And that's shocking to the Pharisees. And it's shocking, I bet, to the sinners as well but for very different reasons. The Pharisees are shocked because they're wondering, why would Jesus pursue those who are so clearly guilty? And I bet the sinners and tax collectors are wondering the same thing. Why would Jesus pursue those who are so clearly guilty? But they wondered it for different reasons because the Pharisees believed that they were righteous men who had merited God's favor. We've been good religious followers of Jesus. Or of God, I'm sorry, of God at this point. Clearly, his Messiah is coming for us. Clearly. How could this man claim to be the Messiah and be pursuing ungodly sinners like these at the same time? The sinners and tax collectors probably realized they were deeply ungodly and sinful men whom God, they thought, would utterly reject. They had to have been asking the question, how could God send his Messiah for us? We're not worthy of that. This this news seems too good. It seems impossibly gracious. Why would Jesus pursue guilty and ungodly men like us? But regardless of the reason that they may have been asking this question, the Pharisees asking it, actually straight out asking it, here's what we know. The question's the same. How could or why would Jesus pursue men who are guilty? Men who are ungodly. Why, Why would they ask this question? In the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word, for justify. It's the word tzedak. That word is used in every case to justify or to reckon, uh, to reckon righteous, to acquit. Okay? To acquit someone or clear the guilty. In every case, it's used in a courtroom scene or in a judgment idea. Okay? Context. So the context is always that someone is justified or acquitted or cleared as in a courtroom, except for two instances. In two instances, that Hebrew word is used in Daniel for something else. But in every other instance, it's talking about being acquitted or justified or cleared in a courtroom context, in a judicial sense. However, what was said in the Old Testament again and again is that God, I want you to hear this, God will by no means, hear this, God will by no means clear, acquit, justify the guilty. God will not acquit the guilty. Don't you hear that? God will not justify the guilty and the ungodly. It says it again and again in the Old Testament. Why is that a problem? That's a problem because we're all guilty of sin, aren't we? 
Yet throughout the Old Testament, the great hope in song is, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Now how can that statement be true? How can it be true that God can be gracious and merciful and forgiving and by no means clear the guilty, acquit or justify the guilty? How can God justify us, in other words, how can he justify us or clear us or quit us without himself being unjust? Do you hear the dilemma? Because what would a just judge do? If you went into a courtroom and you saw a judge tell someone who was clearly guilty, you're acquitted, you're cleared, you're free to go, I've declared you righteous, go. You would say, that is a miscarriage of justice, wouldn't you? It's unjust. So how can God justify the ungodly and himself be just? See, that's the question that Paul takes on in Romans. It's a question he takes on in Romans. And what you see in Romans is Paul giving a, giving a doctrinal and very logical explanation to answer that question in the first few chapters. What you see in the Gospels is Jesus living that out in front of you, what it looks like. But I want you to hear how Paul answers that question. In Romans chapter 3, what's happened is in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul has said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and then the Gentile. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the just shall live or the righteous shall live by faith. But then he goes on in verse 18 and says, Now, why am I not ashamed of the gospel? And why are we looking to the gospel or the good news for the righteousness of God that comes to us through faith? We're looking for it because, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. And then he goes on to lay out this argument for three chapters. And in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul starts to sum it up. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's everyone, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And then he goes on in verse 19 and he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Hear that? No human being will be cleared. No human being will be declared not guilty. No human in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then Paul says, what's the solution to that? God can by no means clear the guilty. So what's the solution? Verse 21, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the Old Testament tells us it's coming, tells us it's coming. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus buys back, whom God put forth. Now I want you to hear this because this is pivotal. How God can be just and the justifier. How can both things be true? Whom God put forward, Jesus, he put forward as a propitiation. That's a satisfaction of his wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This was, here's what Paul says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Those are the people coming up to Jesus. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hear the, hear the solution? Here's the solution. The way God justifies the ungodly is through Jesus. Jesus paid it all. See, God can no, by no means clear the guilty. And he doesn't. What God does is he pours out his wrath on Jesus in our place so that his wrath is completely satisfied on Jesus. Jesus lives perfectly in our place. He pays the penalty due to us for our sin on the cross, thus satisfying the wrath of God against us. And then look what he says in chapter 4 of Romans, verse 1 through 5 briefly. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? In other words, Abraham was a great man. What did he gain by being a great man? For if Abraham was justified or acquitted because of his good works, he has something to boast about. But not before God, for what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What was counted as righteousness? Looking forward in faith to the coming Messiah who would pay his penalty. That's what was counted to him as righteousness. Jesus paid his penalty. And Abraham trusted Jesus. And so then Abraham was counted as righteous. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies, hear that, who declares righteous, who acquits the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Hear that? So how can God justify the ungodly? Because Jesus stood condemned in our place. That's how. God's justice was satisfied against everyone who would ever believe at the cross. We're all ungodly, which is why we all need Jesus. The only people, would you hear this? The only people God justifies are the ungodly. Because no one is righteous, no, not one. And unless you realize that you need Jesus and you look to him in faith, you have no part with him. And if you have no part with him, you're condemned because you stand on your own works. And what man can be cleared of his guilt based on his own works? None. None. So you don't go before the judge and he says to you, you're guilty of murder. And then say to the judge, your honor, I think I should be cleared of my guilt. He says, why should you be cleared of your guilt? And you say, because while I did kill that man, I let everyone else live. 
Okay? And that's essentially what we do when we go, try to say we're going to go before God and say, yeah, I've committed some sin, but I've also done a lot of good things, and I think they outweigh those bad things. And God says, I'm gracious and forgiving and merciful, but I will by no means clear the guilty. And your good works are not going to overcome your sin. The only way that you are cleared is through Jesus, who pays your penalty for you. See, in this passage, we run into a picture of this being lived out. Jesus is going up to the ungodly, to the wicked, to the sinners, to the unrighteous, and they're looking to him in faith and repenting and rejoicing. And the self-righteous Pharisees are thinking to themselves, you know, we're good to go. We don't need Jesus. Thus they're condemned because Jesus has not come for the righteous but the sinners. See, now we don't have this kind of tax collector in our culture, do we? So the story doesn't read that shocking to us. I mean, we just sort of read right over it and go, okay, so he went up to a tax collector and saved him and said, come be my disciple. And then, then that tax collector took all those ill-gotten gains and spent all that money on a big party and they got together with a bunch of other tax collectors and sinners and, and oh, well, that's really nice of Jesus. And, and there are those mean Pharisees and here they just are, you know, they're party poopers. They, they never like a party, right? And so that's the big problem here. And we just sort of read over it and move on. We don't understand how shocking it is. So I want to put it in a different context. Let me change it up a bit. What if Jesus went up to an abortion doctor and said, here, become one of my disciples? And that abortion doctor threw a big party with all his disgustingly gotten gains and invited a bunch of other abortion doctors. And Jesus went to that party and hung out with them and ate the food and drank the wine that was bought with those gains? What if he went up to a homosexual activist and then went to a party with a bunch of homosexual activists? What if he went up to an Islamic terrorist who made his money by terrorizing other people and then that guy held through a party with all his Islamic terrorist friends? What about a cross-dresser? What about some tatted-up, drug-addicted prostitute? See, let me bring it a little closer to home. What if a cross-dresser or an extremely feminine homosexual man or a prostitute or a pimp or a drug dealer or a person who was all tatted-up and drug-addicted walked in here on a Sunday morning? See, what then? Would you think to yourself, be honest, would you think to yourself, we should probably talk to them about this before they come into the worship service because we don't want the children to see that kind of thing. See, that's precisely the kind of thing I want my children to see. I want them to see sinners coming to trust in Jesus. What do you think qualifies any of us to come here on Sunday morning and worship? Do you think it's our cleaned up lives? It isn't. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. But that whole thought makes us cringe if we're honest, doesn't it? See, what does Jesus say to self-righteous people like us? He says what he says to the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 23. What do you, Pharisees and scribes, you hypocrites? Do you think that because you've cleansed the outside of the cup, 
that the inside of the cup is clean? You whitewash tombs, you clean the outside of the tomb, make it look all nice and shiny, but underneath we know is just dead man's bones. See, if we're caught up in self-righteousness, we're just like these Pharisees. If anyone is in Christ, though, if any of these people come here looking to Jesus, they're a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. Third, Jesus is properly responded to with joyful worship and proclamation. He is properly responded to with joyful worship and proclamation, not self-righteous attempts to clean up your life and deny yourself joy. Hear that? Verse 28 and 29, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. That's what Levi did. He repented, trusted, followed, and Levi made him a great feast in his house He throws a party. What does this man do when he hears the gospel and recognizes he's saved? He throws a party. That's what he does. And he invites all his friends because he wants them to hear about it too so they can be saved. There's a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. See, Levi trusts in Jesus. He repents of his sins. He starts following him. And then he says, I'm going to proclaim Jesus by throwing a big party and inviting all of my scummy friends to it. Why? Because that's how faith in Jesus responds. It responds with joyful worship and proclamation. It ought not to cause you to hesitate to invite people who you think might be unacceptable socially here. It ought to cause you to desire to invite them here and celebrate the fact that they come and hear the gospel and repent and look to Jesus. And I'm assuming they do that because I believe the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Look at how this happens, though. And they said to him, here's the Pharisees, verse 33, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. What is he talking about there? The fasting often, they would actually fast 104 times a year. Hear that? They would fast every Monday and Thursday. Every Monday and Thursday. And the fasting was a morning fast. You're mourning. Okay? That was the picture. And the Pharisees, interestingly enough, who could care less about John the Baptist, who want him dead, are pointing to him as an example that Jesus isn't following, right? And so the disciples, and it, look, he goes, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. You guys aren't fasting and mourning, you're throwing a party. What's that about? Don't you understand how religious we are? How righteous we are? Don't you see all the hoops we're jumping through? And yet you suddenly see Jesus and you think it's okay to have a big old party, huh? And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? You know, if you went to a wedding, it would be very strange if you withheld food from your guests, wouldn't it? You're going to fast and mourn. Someone's getting married today. Okay? Obviously not. And the bridegroom, Jesus, and the church, his bride, Jesus is here. He's telling you're not going to fast and mourn. We're going to celebrate. The days will come, verse 35, when the bridegroom is taken away from them. He's talking about his death on the cross. 
And then they will fast in those days. They're going to mourn. But then he returns three days later, and they party again. See, Jesus says the day is coming when the disciples are mourned. That day is when the cross happens. But now is the time for them to have a party. And incidentally, what I want you to know is from the resurrection forward, you never see the church fast again as a sign of mourning. They never again fast for that reason. The reason you see them fast is for wisdom and decision-making. In other words, they still believe in fasting and prayer, but not for this reason. Because the bridegroom has come, and he's risen. And they're his, and he's theirs. It's time for a party. So Levi repents and trusts and follows and worships and proclaims Jesus, and he does that joyfully, not as a slave, but as a son. See, Christianity does not plunge him into being a self-righteous Pharisee. It frees him to be a joyful, outward-looking, thankful worshiper of God who can enjoy God's good gifts. Why is the response that we see in the Gospels continually elicited in people that in, in the stories of Jesus that they party? Why is that? Why do they rejoice and celebrate whenever they come around him? Because when Jesus comes to them, they realize that God justifies the ungodly. He totally removes their sin and cleanses them from all unrighteousness, and so they celebrate. So here's the question I have for you. Do you believe, do you believe the declaration of Psalm 103.12 when it says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We believe that? You guys know who Corey Tin Boone is? Okay, Corey Tin Boone, she, she's, she's known for her heroics and hiding Jews in, during um, the period of the Nazi, Nazis being in charge of Germany and most of Western Europe. And she once said this, and I want you to hear it because I think it's important. God takes our sins. God takes our sins. The past present and future and he dumps them in the sea dumps them in a sea and he puts up a sign that says no fishing allowed hear that see that's what leads to joyful worship or trust in jesus proclamation of jesus and that's what leads to enjoying god's gifts and throwing off the shackles of legalism and asceticism which is denial of the body or of pleasure Fourth, last point, Jesus, did you hear this? Jesus plus nothing is what saves you. Hear that? Jesus plus nothing is your salvation. Not Jesus mixed with your righteousness. Look at verse 36 through 39 briefly. He also told them a parable. And here Luke uses parable pretty, pretty loosely. It's, it's really sort of a, an analogy or a metaphor, but he, he, he tends to use that word more loosely than some of the other gospel writers do. He says this, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. In other words, if you have, new, uh, if you have old clothes, okay, you don't go to the store, you don't get a tear in your old clothes, and then go to the store and buy a new outfit and cut some pieces off of it and stick it on your old outfit and sew it on, do you? That'd be ridiculous. Look what happens. Why? If, if he does... He'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. 
In other words, what he's telling the Pharisees is, no one comes who understands the new covenant of God's grace freely given through Jesus and says, I want to tack on to that my self-righteous works. No one. You just receive the new thing. You wouldn't cut up the new thing of Jesus and go and tack it on the old thing of your good works. What does he say? Just It ruins the new thing. And verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Because if he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it'll be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. They would take these skins and they would, they would shave them down as close as they could and they would, um, they would dry them out, okay? And then they would put new wine into them when they get a new wine skin. Put new wine into them. And then what would happen is, because it's a fresh skin, the new wine as it fermented would expand and the new, new fresh wine skin could handle the new wine. But if you had an old wine skin... One that had been used multiple times, it's become, it starts to become um, a little bit stale, a little bit dry, a little bit inflexible. So if you put new wine into an old wineskin, what would happen to the old wineskin is when the new wine fermented, it would expand and it would burst the new wineskin. And Jesus is essentially saying, you can't take the new covenant of my grace in Jesus and try to pour it in to your old works righteousness. Can't do it. Verse 38. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And this is the last one. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. Here's Jesus being a little bit cynical. Maybe realistic. If you've been drinking the old wine, you never desire the new. For you say, he says, the old is good. Hear the problem there? Herein is the problem with the gospel that Jesus brings. Men want to cling to their self-righteousness, don't they? Men like the old wine. At best, we think Jesus is a good addition to our self-righteousness, much like trying to patchwork together old and new wineskins. But if we're going to embrace the gospel, we have to look to Jesus and him alone. Our trust can't be in ourselves. Can't be. So what does it look like when we're trying to do some patchwork with our self-righteousness and Jesus? What does it look like? Let me give you some pictures of it. If you're looking down at the sinful and wicked world and think that somehow they deserve, that they deserve God's kindness and forgiveness less than you, then you're still clinging to some kind of self-righteousness. If you're uncomfortable around people who are a complete mess, people who are caught up in all kinds of wickedness, people who are dirty, then you're still clinging to some kind of self-righteousness. If you're struggling with forgiving others their sins against you, then you're still struggling with some kind of self-righteousness. If you find it unwise for someone to bring their cross-dressing friend at church to hear the gospel because you're afraid of what your children might see, and you're still clinging to some kind of self-righteousness. They have to see you every day, and you're a sinner. If you're disgusted by homosexuals and abortionists and porn stars and drug dealers and pimps and transvestites and are not equally disgusted with your own sin, then you are still clinging to some kind of self-righteousness. If you see things go wrong in your life and get angry with God, thinking that somehow you deserve better, then you're still clinging to self-righteousness. 
if you're constantly returning to the ocean of God's grace and trying to fish up your sins and point to them as to why you can't possibly be saved, then you are still clinging to some kind of self-righteousness. See, what does the gospel say to us? It says that Jesus plus nothing saves us. Everything we could ever want is freely given to us in Jesus, and we bring nothing to the table. Nothing. The gospel says to us what God says in Isaiah 55, 1-3. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. How do you buy and eat with no money? Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why? Because God's grace is free in Jesus because Jesus paid it all. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand the absolute freeness of the grace that you offer in your Son, Jesus. That we do nothing to deserve it or merit it. We've done nothing to earn it. We can't add to it. We can't subtract from it. That we just look to Him and we're saved. Pray, Father, for people in this room who aren't looking to Him right now that they would and they would be saved. You would do work in them so they would see Jesus. They'd rejoice in Him as their salvation. Father, we pray for those of us who are believers who somehow try to patchwork back into, our, into this whole deal, our self-righteousness, who aren't equally disgusted with our sin as we are with the sin that's out there in the world, who aren't equally desiring to see other people saved and recognizing that none of us deserve salvation at all and wanting to see others saved as we have been because we are like them as Paul says in Romans 1, that we have a debt to them to tell them about the gospel that saved us. Father, we pray that, that we would pay that debt, that we would tell others who are condemned like we were about Jesus, and that they would be saved, that you would root out all the self-righteousness in our hearts, that we would love people well, that we would point them to your son and the fact that the only hope they have is faith and repentance in his name. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.